Uh, it's late in an intriguing day uh, discussing a man who casts a long and continuing shadow, or rather illumination, in American public policy. When we focus on Daniel Patrick Moynihan and his work with the 37th president, we ask what brought these two people from such remarkably different political paths together? Also, what did they try to accomplish together and what might it have meant? Try and might have. It is the sad truth that Moynihan and Nixon sought a truly radical change in American social policy, but in the end, with both the left and the right opposing them, they could not prevail. I tell this tale not only from Moynihan's files, the largest at the Library of Congress, the largest of any human being at the Library of Congress in Washington, or from Nixon's papers, but also from my own diary and my papers. We have disturbances in cities of many sizes today as we did in 1967 and 68, often racial in origin. We have numbingly abusive rhetoric against establishment Republicans and Democratic regulars by their pitchfork-carrying antagonists. Five decades back, the Republican Party was torn asunder by grassroots guerrilla attacks and the Democratic Party dismembered over the Vietnam War. It's well to remember another figure on the scene in 1968. It was George Corley Wallace, the defiant segregationist governor of Alabama. Wallace was not just another Strom Thurmond, a regional racist candidate or phenomenon. He had mesmerizing appeal to working and lower middle class whites. He was a Democrat who turned third party in 1968 and who carried five states and 45 electoral college votes that year. His was a constituency the leaders of both parties had ignored or scorned. That sense in his followers of being patronized or ridiculed increased their decibel level and energized his campaign. It was bitterly anti-establishment, raw, vocal. Richard Nixon and Pat Moynihan were to discuss and focus on these concerns in their measures to relieve economic stress and alienation and try to reattach these people to a conviction that the society can work for them. On Thanksgiving Day, and this is a wonderful memory, in a Friday, rather, Thanksgiving Friday, in late November of 1991, Daniel Patrick Moynihan delivered the Cyril Foster Lecture here at Oxford. It was later published as a small book titled Pandemonium. It had to do with the place of ethnicity in politics. Moynihan confessed to his audience, I was among them, that the speech was not as polished as he would like. Three days earlier, he had floor managed the surface transportation bill in the United States Senate. I was struck then and I remain astonished by the elemental force of this man. He combined the ability to deliver a thoughtful academic lecture with the ability to herd cats on the floor of the United States Senate <laughs> all in one week, okay? <laughs> on December 8, 1968, Pat Moynihan met for the first time with the president-elect Richard Nixon as Nixon was assembling his team. Now Moynihan was an active, engaged Democrat who had served the governor of New York, Averill Harriman, a patrician titan in the Democratic Party. Harriman was toppled by an even more wealthy but far folksier Republican, Nelson Rockefeller, 
1958, thus putting Pat out of a job. Pat was warp and woof of a long strain of Irish for whom politics became the way out of subsistence living and sidelining. Combining into tight, mutually supportive organizations became key to Irish ascent in politics. Moynihan was well aware of Tammany Hall in New York City and other Democratic satrapies across New York State and further. But Pat's interest in ethnicity transcended just a pride in the Irish. He had a bread and bone understanding of the tribal nature of politics. In the organizations which responded to this, Moynihan caught the sense of enduring and socially important institutions. This included the church. The church assumed commitment in faith. Tammany and its brethren asked fealty in voting. These intimate ties of faith and politics were Moynihan's lineage. Why was the Republican Richard Nixon interested in a man who'd supported John Kennedy, then Bob Kennedy, then Hubert Humphrey, an Irish Democrat, more a natural ally of Chicago's boss, Mayor Richard Daley, than of Richard Nixon? Moynihan thinks the first glimmer of Nixon's interest in him was a talk he had given to the Americans for Democratic Action. In a July 1970 memorandum that Pat sent to the two top White House aides, H.R. Haldeman and John Ehrlichman, Pat says, as best I can tell, I got my job in the Nixon administration as the result of a speech in which I proposed that American politics were approaching instability and that liberals who understood this should seek out and make alliances with their conservative equivalents in order to preserve democratic institutions from the looming forces of the authoritarian left and right. It seemed to me the three-way split in the election, George Wallace, made the argument even more compelling. I took the president's offer of a job to me as an indication that he shared this view. While Nixon campaigned on law and order, his speeches also sought to calm the nation and bind it back together. There had to be an emollient in response to the 1968 reality of violence and fearful rhetoric. Moynihan was deeply thoughtful about these problems and could aspire to being of real and immediate use to Nixon. So despite Moynihan's democratic activism, there's also no reason to believe Moynihan was ever a visceral Nixon hater, as were so many liberal Democrats. Indeed, one bond they shared was the hurtful sense of not being truly accepted by the establishment of their parties. Moynihan, of course, bore the scar tissue from his treatment after the publication of the American Negro Family Report. The liberal establishment had turned on him viciously. But Moynihan was far more concerned with substance than with slights. Now, what of Nixon at this moment? An earlier intriguing insight is the attitude toward Nixon of New York's Republican governor and presidential candidate Thomas Dewey. In April of 1952, Dewey heard Nixon speak, and what appealed to Dewey that evening was Nixon's call for a candidate who could attract millions of Democratic and independent voters. I thought he was a fine speaker. He had a very fine voting record in both the House and the Senate, good, intelligent, middle of the road, and at this time it was important to get a senator who knew the world was round. Dewey saw Nixon as swimming in the stream which Dewey and Eisenhower inhabited and wished 
to build into the dominant flood of politics of the 1950s and beyond. <clears throat> Careful, but fully engaged in international affairs, cautious and prudent in fiscal matters, caring, humane, and liberal when it came to questions of people's well-being. This was the republicanism the right wing saw as New York New Deal Republicans, betrayers of orthodoxy. Then as now, the fault line was, should there be a genuine social safety net which kept families free from the fear of destitution and helplessness? The main themes which Nixon and Moynihan will agree upon are first, the need to restore social order and respect for institutions which were under siege. The second was to help less advantaged Americans, white and black, feel economic security, opportunity, and hope. The match between this odd couple was soon made. The first contact was by Moynihan. On December 20th, 1967, Moynihan wrote a letter to Nixon about a New York Times account of some of Nixon's views on urban poverty and invited Nixon to come to lunch at the Harvard-MIT Joint Center. On October 24, 68, in the heat of the campaign, Moynihan wrote Nixon about his radio address on employment as the key to social stability, a fact which you made clear and explicit, and specifically cautioned Nixon about a business council call for a higher unemployment rate to combat inflation. Moynihan, they do not understand what such an unemployment rate would do to the urban Negro social structure. It means more broken families, more welfare recipients, more persons sent to prison, more of all the problems you will be trying to resolve. Now John Ehrlichman, the aide I mentioned earlier, thought the first one actually suggesting Moynihan for the administration was Robert Finch, soon to be secretary of the sprawling Department of Health and Education and Welfare. The election had been a narrowly won thing, as I said, with Nixon only a plurality president due to the large vote for George Wallace. To have a visible Democrat in his circle would make sense. In the event, Pat's explosion on this very domestic Republican scene gave the Nixon administration a large dose of paprika and panache. At first, the right role for Moynihan was not obvious to either the president-elect or Moynihan. Moynihan asked for a portfolio which built on an earlier interest of his, transportation. The Nixon people scratched their heads as they did not think of him in this context. In addition, it was a non-starter. They already had somebody for that job. And it was well for Pat and the president that this was the case. Otherwise, rather than sparking ideas with an intellectually curious president, he might instead have been mustering the arguments to try to continue the development of the supersonic transport and at a distance as a cabinet head, thus violating one of the laws that Moynihan later indoctrinated me in, Moynihan's iron law of proximity. <laughs> when the two principals met in Steve Hess's account in The Professor and the President, Moynihan found Nixon uninformed on many of the areas of social policy which were Moynihan's terrain. But Nixon displayed a keen intelligence, and Moynihan's long preparation in the bureaucracy made him fully aware of how important having the ear of a president would be. The two still needed to figure out how and on what they would work together. The next idea centered on a body which had been created under the poverty program, Gareth, I'm sure well familiar with this, called the Economic Opportunity Council, <coughs> made up of cabinet members from the relevant departments. 
And Pat's first proposal was that Finch act as chair and Pat serve as executive secretary. My water went, but thank you. Um, Nixon was already starting to think about a cabinet level body, but which he would likely chair himself. The political message that would send of deep, visible, personal involvement, presidential involvement in these matters certainly would count in Nixon's view. After they met on December 8th, Pat, with the Economic Opportunity Council still the vehicle in mind, sent a short memo to Nixon saying he also needed the, the White House title of Special Assistant to the President for domestic affairs. The special assistant must be responsible for preparing the major presidential papers on domestic affairs. He added, after thinking about it at some length, I hate titles, I feel also that the appendage for domestic affairs really is necessary if I am to do for you the job I believe must and think can be done. On December 10th, two days later, Nixon announced Pat's appointment as his assistant for urban affairs and said a body was to be created to help shape urban policy, analogous to the National Security Council for foreign policy. Moynihan took me to lunch on my 30th birthday just a few days later. The lunch was rushed but cheerful. In its course, Moynihan told me that America had it in its gift to be not just the first multiracial society, but the first non-racial society in history. Pat asked me to be an assistant to him, doing the same sort of thing he is. The overview of domestic policy, which means urban problems, which means the black problem. Shortly after, he noted that we were few and asked if I would also take on a subject area of responsibility. I opted immediately for welfare because I had an interest in it, but I also knew it would be of paramount importance, importance to Moynihan himself. But first, we needed to get the structure finalized. The answer to me was inescapable. Uh, the president would need to chair the council. Nixon had already reached the same conclusion. But with the body, what was the writ? What was its mandate, its scope? Nixon had asked Arthur Burns to analyze the results of the transition task forces. Burns had known Nixon since Burns was the chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors in the Eisenhower White House. He was a conservative. He was fiscally and temperamentally cautious. On the very same day, January 23, 1969, as the creation and first meeting of the Council for Urban Affairs with Moynihan as executive secretary, Nixon announced Burns' appointment as counselor to the president for domestic affairs, the very term Pat had sought for himself. Burns' responsibility was to be the coordination of the development of my domestic policies and programs. Pat could understand Nixon's need to palliate those on the conservative side of his party, yet the question was, what does it mean for my role? There were two ways of contending for the president's support and satisfaction. The first was administrative, how Moynihan would grasp and use his direction of the council. The second was in policy itself. Over the coming months, these aspects of Moynihan's work with the president took divergent paths. Moynihan's hopes for the CUA Council becoming the successful parallel to the NSC were ultimately dashed. Yet simultaneously, his influence with Nixon on policy grew dramatically. He was unique on all the White House staff, energizing. 
he was singularly able to give coherent voice to much of what the new president was trying to accomplish. Pat embarked with enthusiasm and energy. He had confidence the council machinery would be his bulwark. He understood the importance for the president of coordination between all the cabinet departments and buy-in to the policies adopted. And one of his iron laws, uh, he anchored and, and it anchored the hopes that Pat harbored for the council. The iron law of urban affairs is that everything relates to everything. The president makes a decision, all cabinet members in his presence know he has reached it, and they know each other knows. Otherwise, isolated program goes on. An issue which surfaced immediately was what to do about the poverty program. Pat was convinced, as you've heard, <laughs> uh, that the whole premise to provide services to the poor was misconceived and had the bizarre result of the service providers becoming a culture unto themselves, ossifying into a patronizing mindset, earning multiples of those whom they were meant to serve. This was the root of Moynihan's vivid image of feeding the sparrows by feeding the horses. Think about that. He fought to keep the outlines and organizations of anti-poverty efforts, but he readily accepted reforms in their content. This was to enable him to concentrate on the more strategic vision he had of moving with the president to an income strategy. During consideration of the OEO, Pat said to me that Nixon was mad about our, presentation, our preparation of materials. Hard to compare us with the NSC. In business since 1947 and with a staff of 38, Moynihan grumbled. We had been in existence a little over a month and had a staff of six. <laughs> Governor William Scranton of Pennsylvania, who challenged Goldwater at the end of the 64 primary campaign uh, and was a friend of mine, asked me in mid-February, I wonder when are we going to see some programs? He asked about the relation between Burns and Moynihan. I told him how deferential Pat is to Burns and how we were seeking to bring Burns into the tent of the council and make that the forum for discussions. Scranton asked if Pat would like to abolish the OEO. Scranton said, if we did, we'd have dozens of Presbyterian ministers, and I'm a Presbyterian, he said, in Lafayette Square. At that very moment, Moynihan walked in and exclaimed, I usually say Episcopal bishops. <laughs> Scranton, days later, had a meeting with Nixon and Arthur Burns about taking the OEO job. Burns, in his diary, said, President went overboard, told Scranton that he was not satisfied with Moynihan in the sphere of devising urban programs, that he wanted Scranton not only to take OEO, but to take charge of urban programs as a whole. Unaware of that Nixon-Scranton talk, uh, and how threatening it might be to Pat's position early in the administration, Pat and I spent an hour with Scranton. Scranton kept at the point that the president needed someone in the White House to follow through on domestic issues, acknowledging that there were excellent thinking people. Pat agreed with the importance of this, of someone who could say no. Scranton did not take the OEO job, and Moynihan and our staff worked at flank speed to generate a cluster of policy proposals which Moynihan took with him to an all-hands Key Biscayne meeting. Principal among them was a welfare reform initiative. In the end, the Council for Urban Affairs had its finest moment in the formulation of the Great Family Assistance Plan initiative of Nixon's. Excuse me. 
It was ultimately his initiatives in welfare and income strategies for which Pat will be remembered, and the President and Pat remembered together. It was the legacy that Nixon lost, the monument Nixon hoped for. It was deeply ironic that the winter 1968 issue of Public Interest had an article written by Pat, The Crisis in Welfare. About it, he said, the nation is not likely to do anything much to change it. The President and Pat soon put the lie to that resigned tone of acceptance. There were external factors which certainly came into play as the two began working together. Not since the 19th century had a president been elected for the first time and have neither House of Congress controlled by his party. Another crucial factor lay outside the Congress in Alabama. The 1968 election saw that remarkably high turnout for George Wallace. His voters were typically white, male, economically threatened, and angered by the rapid social changes in the country. In early September 1968, Wallace had come up in a discussion with a co-worker of mine from the Rockefeller campaign who was very attentive to church matters and voters. He told me of his fears that immigrant whites would break and vote for, vote for Wallace. Bishop John Joseph Wright of Pittsburgh had told him of his depression in the last couple of weeks at serving communion to Hungarian petitioners who were wearing Wallace buttons. They had no truck for the liberal causes of the pangendrums of the National Democratic Party. The Roosevelt Coalition had northern, of Northern liberals and race-baiting Southerners was defunct. But race was not the only issue with these voters. They felt marginalized, left behind, struggling to stay even. As Patrick Buchanan, Nixon's tribune to the conservative movement, said to me in conversation last November, we always had Wallace on our minds. If Nixon and Buchanan had Wallace on their minds, so too did Moynihan and Nixon. Moynihan was keenly aware of the white working class. Nixon and Moynihan's income strategy was to address this alienation and economic hardship as much as abject and often black poverty. I will make two points which fly in the face of received wisdom. First, FAP was not just the idea of holdover mid-level Democrats in the bureaucracy. It was an idea with early, strong Republican parentage. Second, Nixon was not half-hearted or insincere in his embrace of his income strategy. Once he decided, he fought for it until he was ground down. He kept coming back to it for years in letters and conversations with Moynihan, wistfully wishing he had succeeded in passage of our monument. Well, how did FAP, or initially Family Security System, FSS, come to be? Nixon had campaigned on doing something about welfare. Caseloads were exploding in major urban areas. There was a conviction, not unlike that in Europe today, that there were many welfare migrants. The attitudes had racial overtones. There were a number of ideas which came together in early 1969, out of which emerged the Family Assistance Plan, the Nixon proposal for an income, not a welfare strategy. First and foremost were Moynihan's. He felt the urgency of an income approach. His was based on the family allowance concept, a per capita grant of cash based on the number of, family in a, of children in a family. Moynihan was his most ardent and effective proponent. 
He for years had worked to promote the idea. The most effective advocacy for the family allowance Moynihan made was in the New York Times Magazine of February 5th of 1967. It prompted a strong positive editorial five days later in the Catholic Century called Money as a Cure for Poverty. This was, of course, Moynihan's very point. The second key idea in the Nixon administration debates on welfare programs was a modification of the 1930s framework. Richard Nathan was its exponent. Dick had worked for Nelson Rockefeller and was the chair of the Welfare Transition Task Force. The transition paper supported national standards for the main welfare program, the Aid to Families with Dependent Children, or AFDC. This in part reflected Nathan's disposition to help the northern states with some of the heavy burden on them of their part in welfare payments. It was frankly favored by those who were more concerned with fiscal relief than with family structure issues. The third and ultimately successful approach was a negative income tax, NIT, N-I-T. When Moynihan told me to take over the welfare portfolio for us, even before inauguration, the very first thing I did was to show him a draft of a negative income tax statute done by two students at the Yale Law School. Leading to that, two Ripon Society members, a liberal Republican group of which I was just immediately uh, past chairman, wrote an article titled The Negative Income Tax, A Republican Proposal to Help the Poor. This Ripon proposal was the first from any political group in the country to design and endorse a workable plan for an NIT. It received coverage in over 50 newspapers and was a working paper for the National College debate topic for 1968. Among even earlier Republican advocates of an NIT were Henry Wallach, who'd been on Eisenhower's Council of Economic Advisors with Arthur Burns, and Milton Friedman, the top economic advisor to the Goldwater campaign. The Ripon authors said it would be a great Republican initiative comparable to the Homestead Act. No other program to fight poverty can also strengthen free markets and reduce federal intervention in the economy. Now, I had seen earlier drafts of this. On January 23rd of 68, I was at a small dinner of seven or eight with Richard Nixon at the Lynx Club in New York City just before he declared his candidacy. I raised with him the NIT idea saying I'd been struck by how it enjoyed the strong support of freedmen and democratic advocates like James Tobin. Nixon said to me, January 68, said, yeah, welfare will be an issue in the campaign, but he was not yet ready to embrace the NIT. In December of 68, the NIT statute, and I'll explain why I'm going into such detail, the NIT statute was sent by Dick Zimmer, the chair of the Yale Ripon Group, and later himself a congressman from New Jersey, to Republican Congressman Richard Whelan, asking that he not allow the idea to be hijacked by the Democrats, as it was based on thoroughly Republican principles. Among those to whom the draft statute was sent was Bob Patricelli, who was on Nathan's Transition Task Force on Welfare. Patricelli soon went to work for Secretary Finch at HEW, where an earlier, low-level Johnson-era version of a negative income tax was languishing for want of love. So two of us Ripon Republicans, one at the White House and at HEW, were disposed to the idea of a negative income tax and now we're in place and had it in our portfolios. Things moved very quickly. 
Officials at HEW and OEO who had unsuccessfully tried to persuade Johnson officials now convinced Patricelli and his bosses at HEW of the merits of the NIT. We did a draft options paper. Dick Nathan, now at the Budget Bureau, analyzed costs of this new possibility, though Dick never became a supporter. Moynihan and I, a few weeks later, had dinner at the late lamented A.V. Ristorante on New York Avenue, where over Linguini, I outlined the rudiments of the negative income tax proposal in our new options paper. Its floor was $1,600 a year for a family of four, but also integrated food stamps and a training program, and provided $710 million of fiscal relief to the states. Quickly understanding that it would accomplish exactly what he sought, a far broader approach to income maintenance. Uh, he said to me, you've got it. And he became totally involved in the struggle for Nixon's support that followed, and then the battle to make it law. The presidential options paper included, as the less preferred option, the national standards for AFDC approach. The preferred option was our family security system, later known as FAP, or Family Assistance. This paper went to the president with Moynihan for the Key Biscayne Domestic Policy Summit. The epic battle was joined. A wonderful pick-me-up for you real students of income maintenance. A wonderful pick-me-up occurred on March 26th when Pat and I had lunch with Senator Paul Douglas of Illinois. A grand, this is from my diary, a grand old man, an intellectual patriarch, very strong grasp of detail. He mentioned to Moynihan as he was leaving, you and I should talk sometime about family allowances. I wrote the first book on it in 1928. <laughs> but, and then wistfully, wistfully said, I made one mistake. I just did not anticipate the movement of the Negroes from the South. Arthur Burns' aide, Martin Anderson, was a vociferous critic of the plan. In late April, he gave to Nixon a critique of the Moynihan-Finch plan. He called it a short history of a family security system. In it, he described the failures of a relief program in England, which was changed by the poor laws of the 1830s, quoting Santayana on history condemned to repeat itself. Pat sprang into action, calling his Cambridge University friend J.H. Plum at three in the morning, Plum tells me, to plot a response with him. The fortunes of war shifted constantly. On May 14th, Moynihan told me that the president had decided over the weekend to go with the family security system. I was overjoyed, and he said, you've drawn your first blood. <laughs> but trench warfare returned. Moynihan and I flew to New York and met with David Rockefeller, chair of the Chase Manhattan Bank. He was well disposed. So was our next appointment at St. Patrick's Cathedral, Terence Cardinal Cook. Last on our dance card was William F. Buckley, Jr. I had never met him, nor had Moynihan. We went to dinner at his townhouse. There was a number of rather epicene young men around, one of whom played the Jew's harp. When Pat took the first spoonful of his soup and exclaimed, there are apples in this soup, Buckley purred in amusement that yes, there were. It was the beginning of an interesting relationship. It was Buckley's brother, Jim, whom Pat defeated in 1976 to win his first of four terms in the U.S. Senate. And Maura, thank you for the wonderful series of video clips this morning. Uh, you, some of you may have noticed that uh, mid-1977, that there was a cameo role of William F. Buckley in that one of the videos. And that was just months after Moynihan had beaten Buckley's brother. So Buckley was looking a little asher. 
On May 17th, a glorious sunny Saturday, four of us went to the shaded porch outside the Oval Office next to the Rose Garden and sat on the white wrought iron furniture. Most of the Janissaries were away and we had the place to ourselves. Pat magically produced four glasses and ice shavings and poured a libation. There was a great sense of camaraderie which was notable among Pat's staff. Pat told us about a 15-page memo to Nixon which he sent that morning on Pete Hamill's piece in New York Magazine about the revolt of the lower middle class. Looking back, this long conversation that morning laid out the entire strategy of the income maintenance proposals and their relation to the alienation of the Wallace voters. How, this is Moynihan. How is the great mass of white working people to regain a sense of positive advantage from the operation of American government? and retain a steady loyalty to the processes of American society at a time when those above and below them in the social hierarchy seem simultaneously to be robbing the system blind and contemptuously dismissing all its rules. Pat said to Nixon, it seemed to me this is just what you were talking about during the campaign. These forgotten Americans finally have become angry. We must cease, still Moynihan, we must cease defining social problems in such a way as to separate blacks and to a degree Hispanic Americans from the rest of the society. A services strategy, Pat told us as we looked out onto the spring blossoms in the Rose Garden, tends not only to exclude working class whites but also to set up a great many middle class whites and blacks in the resentment business. Pat told us that on social services and the resentment business all Richard Nixon now knows is that he doesn't like it. Pat said what he hopes to do have, to have done is to have at least gotten him to try to analyze it rather than simply be frightened by it. He noted the ferocious attitude by black militants and as to students, quote, it's getting to the point where the students are saying to the faculty, it's 9 p.m., go up to bed. As to student attitudes, he had written Nixon, there is a class prejudice of the college population from which the service dispensers are drawn. Today they are really rather fiercely contemptuous of Hamill's folk. And mine, says Moynihan, my relatives are New York cops, plumbers, bartenders, and the like. He said the first approach was to see the importance of the jobs and income strategy and to explain it systematically to the public. To do so would defuse some of the animosity felt towards welfare. The income strategy seeks to provide adequate incomes for all so that as much as possible everyone purchases services in a single market. Thus the government does not seem to be playing favorites while ignoring the needs of others who are only marginally better off. He said he told Nixon, your tax reform proposals, which would exempt five million persons in poor families from income tax, was the first step. Your hunger program of food stamps, a form of currency, was the second step. The FFSS, the FAP, which would aid the working poor, 60% of whom are white, as well as the wholly dependent poor, and do so as one system of income maintenance, would be the third step. Revenue sharing, this is interesting, revenue sharing which, if large enough, could begin to ease the ferocious burden of regressive sales taxes and the like on Hamill's urban working class would be the fourth step. And manpower training on the level and with the structure now being prepared by the Labor Department. Together, these measures have the making of a social revolution 
which preserves the fabric of American society rather than tearing it to shreds. At long last, the people in between would begin benefiting from the efforts of government to redress the long-standing and fully documented grievances of the people at the bottom. His memo ended saying, we must dissolve the black urban lower class, turning it into a black lower middle class in its own right, and simultaneously seek the ethical and political formulations that will restore legitimacy to our society in the eyes of its elite youth. Things went on, and Secretary of Labor George Shultz had added a feature to allow the working poor to retain part of their earnings without losing the base of the family income which FAP would provide. I saw Ehrlichman on June 16th, and he told me George Shultz gooses the cost up by about a billion. Remarkably, Ehrlichman then spoke of something the Yale Ripon paper had raised. This is Ehrlichman quote. The one thing not covered yet was government as employer of last resort not decided whether to patch that on, close quote. So here's Richard Nixon thinking about income maintenance and employer of last resort, jobs and income. This was Moynihan's mantra. On July 7th, Ehrlichman told us Nixon had decided to go with the family security system. How many times had we heard that already? Uh, later that day, he told us Nixon wanted to take the general line of George Shultz, but he liked Arthur Byrne's work requirements. This is important. When I told Pat at 10 that night, he said, we don't care about these things around the fringes. I'm concerned only with the income maintenance. Fascinatingly, since Nixon made much of a work requirement, mainly to avoid FAP being called a guaranteed income, he said to Moynihan in the Oval Office on August 7th, the day before his public announcement of FAP, this is Nixon, I don't give a damn about the work requirement. This is the price of getting the $1,600. The floor, in fact. He, Nixon, was a man committed. He told Moynihan in the next breath, I have been reading of Disraeli and Winston Churchill's father. Tory men and liberal principles are what have changed the world. He's just saying back to Moynihan what Moynihan had been talking to him about now for months. Nixon reflected on the battle before the Camp David cabinet session of some few days earlier, August 5th. He says, as you know, only three members of the cabinet were with me. He noted the vice president's petulant behavior there, which had astonished me. I was there and, and watched it too. The president says, why was the vice president so whiny? This lack of support kept nagging at Nixon. On October 24th, he told Pat, the cabinet cannot sell our programs because they don't believe in them. Nixon and Camp David admitted it is full of holes, but you've done the best you can given the fiscal constraints. Nixon confessed to Pat, I have doubts, but we will do it anyway. I did this because it had to be done. Pat had spoken to me a month earlier about the hostility from some Nixon aides to Finch and some of these ideas. They just don't agree with his politics. These people just don't understand what the American middle class and lower middle classes are thinking. They don't understand them. The president and Moynihan did. Before the final decision, Ehrlichman called me and said the president wanted to see data on the impact of FAP in the South and the respective incidence of benefit between white and non-white populations. It was very clear that FAP would be of enormous economic benefit there. The lowest levels of welfare payments were in that region and the most widespread poverty even among those working full-time. 
Following his message on new federalism, Nixon deployed a dutiful Arthur Burns and an exuberant Moynihan to the Sunday television news shows. Pat was on Meet the Press. After it, uh, Len Garment, uh, he, Pat, and I met at Steve Hess's home. Bob Finch called. He's manic, said Pat, and wanted to send the bill up by Wednesday. Then the president phoned from San Clemente. He and his wife, Patricia, were having martinis watching surfers off the beach, and obviously, as Len said, feeling no pain. <laughs> Len informed him we were having crabs and beer. Moynihan, from my diary again, was irrepressible. He told Nixon that the press was euphoric and that it wouldn't last. He said, how nice of you to call on your vacation, and ended with, go swimming now. <laughs> the president had four of us into the Oval Office who were going to fan out across the country for briefings with editorial boards. Nixon's desktop was clean and he was talking to Governor John Rhodes of uh, Ohio as we came in and sat. He put the phone back on the cradle, welcomed us, and said, isn't it wonderful that your idea has been given birth to? I replied, yes, and you were a wonderful midwife. <laughs> Nixon then said the proposal had, through the work requirement, become more refined and more in accord with my own prejudices. He went on to say, now it is in the hands of God and the people who will benefit from it, that it was a gamble on human nature. California Governor Ronald Reagan was a political factor in Nixon's thinking. Nixon thought it possible that Reagan would challenge him for the nomination in 1972. Reagan was the Elisha who had picked up the mantle of the fallen Elijah of Barry Goldwater. We met with the governor at San Clemente. Nixon talked Reagan through the charts I'd prepared and took considerable pains to analyze the rural impact of this and stressed to Reagan that the major impact was going to be in the South and at least half among whites, which was true nationally. With regard to the work requirement, he was equally pointed, with Reagan saying that the requirement should be firm. Days later, uh, at a meeting of the council, uh, Pat opened by reading a letter that had been sent after the announcement of FAP. And the letter said, Dear Mr. President, said, uh, I want to let you know that I never trusted you before but now I can trust you, signed, social scientist. To which Nixon said, sorry, I can't reciprocate. <laughs> and then Pat went on to say, with Congress coming back, we will see the beginning of opposition from the liberal left, whose main criticism will be that this is not enough and that it is regional in nature. Pat plunged into the fight. Uh, with the Civil Rights Leadership Conference, Moynihan launched into a passionate support of the plan. He said it was a liberal proposal coming from a conservative president. He said they should not fail to support it because it was Richard Nixon's. He said a failure of FAP would mean there would be no welfare reform for a generation. Guess what? Nixon still was ebullient. In a congressional leadership meeting on September 15th, he was particularly pleased to hear a report from his postmaster general, Winton Blunt of Alabama. This is Blunt talking. In the South, they asked us, Wallace people asked us, are you trying to put us out of business? Yes, shouted Blunt. Nixon himself noted that in Mississippi, John Bell Williams, the governor, and two senators, Nixon, as conservative as you get, all for it. Nixon, a week later with Moynihan in the Oval Office, said of FAP, this is the big game. This will be our monument.
In mid-September, Nixon said, the Democrats don't want to pass anything that will give credit to a Republican administration. He noted, the Great Society was a welfare strategy. We have an income strategy. This has great political potency. Moynihan was in a full court press. He brought in Ben Heinemann, chair of a national commission on income maintenance, who had a corporate investment going into Louisiana for which Senator Russell Long was heaping praise on him, the same Senator Long who, as chair of Senate Finance, would be crucial to passage of FAP. Moynihan then turned to the courtship of Wilbur Mills, the chairman of House Ways and Means. Moynihan was tireless. He agreed to give a commencement speech at Hendricks College, Mills's alma mater. Pat told me of addressing Mills as, Mr. Speaker, uh, uh, I mean Mr. Chairman. Uh, Ways and Means and the House passed Nixon's bill. Now Moynihan's office had a ceiling of translucent glass panels, each about a foot square. On learning of passage, April 16th, I think, of, of uh, 70, we pulled a cork from a bottle of champagne for the staff. The cork burst through the ceiling glass and inches from its entry hole came to rest. A dark cork silhouette remained there through Moynihan's time in that office. <laughs> The Senate Finance Committee ultimately would not report it out. Republicans faulted its mechanics. Democrats said it was too little. In autumn of 1973, two years after I'd left government, I was at a cocktail party in London at George Weidenfeld's. So too was U.S. Senator Eugene McCarthy, who was on Senate finance before which FAP came. I opened the conversation by recalling Pat had told me of going with McCarthy uh, to the back reaches of Rock Creek Park in Washington on one sunlit Sunday afternoon with a thermos of whiskey. McCarthy took over the narrative from me, noting that it was a full gallon of martinis, and that as they stumbled back down to the parking area, they encountered a constable whom they talked out of any action. McCarthy and I talked of the Nixon welfare reform. I chided him for having voted against the Nixon bill in Senate finance. He argued that the National Welfare Rights Organization's bill was better. McCarthy said he felt Moynihan had been misled by the White House insiders who were not serious about the bill. I said this president had bought into it. The senator said the president should reintroduce it. This is autumn 73. And that it would be not only good policy, but good for Nixon at this troubled juncture, Watergate's bubbling. At this very time, there was a renewed effort led by Secretary Caspar Weinberger to reintroduce family assistance, and it came to naught. Moynihan and Nixon, until the president's death, stayed in touch and engaged on this issue. I think they brought out the better angels in one another. And both of them knew this. Moynihan wrote to Nixon about the 1987 efforts at welfare reform, which he termed pathetically small when compared with your truly titanic legislation nearly two decades ago. But there you are. We are a somewhat diminished polity. Nixon responded two weeks later that our joint efforts, our joint labors, which, vet, which finally produced FAP at our meeting at Camp David, may not have been in vain if your current efforts bear fruit. The critics of welfare reform must face up to the fact that the division between blacks and whites is much worse than it was 20 years ago. When the bill passed, Dixon wrote to Pat, after all the blood that was left on the floor at Camp David and then in our lobbying efforts with the Congress for FAP, I was particularly pleased to see the welfare reform bill enacted into law. 
As I'm sure you will agree, it is only a beginning in dealing with what has been a virtually intractable problem for a quarter of a century. I'm convinced, however, that it is without question a step in the right direction. Moynihan wrote back, there were a half dozen moments when it looked as if it was lost. Then there were second thoughts, most of them going back to the blood left on the floor, as you put it, over FAP. It took 20 years to get back to this subject. No one wanted to risk this a second time, so your efforts were not in vain. Four years later, Moynihan wrote to Nixon about the so-called adult categories, aid to the aged, the blind, and the disabled. One feature of the family, it was the only feature of the family assistance plan to make it into statute. Only the children were left out. Benefits for children under AFDC are now about 60% in constant dollars of what they were when you proposed FAP. Nixon wrote back that Pat was right on target. This is Nixon. It is a national tragedy that an unholy alliance of the far right and left killed FAP. In conclusion, and it is, <laughs> I am drawn back to a conversation I had late on Christmas Eve 1969 in the Oval Office with the President. With the shadows lengthening on the lawn behind him and the rays of the sun, the slant, uh, pouring light over his shoulders onto his desk, he said that it was terribly important that we get family assistance passed and we would get it. After a pause and with a thoughtful expression on his face, he said to me, of course, annually, the subject of raising the floor will come up. Every year, most of the Republicans will vote against any increase, but it will be passed with mostly Democratic votes. It doesn't matter. He concluded by saying simply, the important thing is that we will have established the principle. Thank you. Thanks, guys. You want to take that? Thank you. Thank you.